enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest states these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And that is exactly what this guest does on a regular basis, and this guest is Hannah Johnson. I'm so excited to talk to Hannah because she has had a remarkable run over the last three years or so. Uh, she's basically, that was the start of her running career um, in conjunction with having two kids. And now this year, specifically ripping off a bunch of just high level running performances, despite the fact, again, she's, you know, has two little kids at home has a full-time job, is actually a professor in the College of Pharmacy at the University of Kentucky, and, you know, again, like me, is an early morning riser. So I love these 4.30 a.m. risers, if for no other reason, then it makes me feel a little bit better about myself, knowing I'm not the only one doing it. So Hannah and I are kind of on the same athletic running schedule, uh, which is always nice to see her out there kicking butt. And boy, has she done that this year, uh, going into the marathon, coming off uh, tri- uh, you know, basically a tibial fracture, and just you know, making it happen and doing it in a way that is a little atypical in regards to the amount of training she did and the way she was able to do it. And I love hearing these kind of stories about people who find, you know, a little bit of a workaround around, you know, things that are going on in their lives, whether it's injury or a time issue or whatever, and finding ways to achieve their goals or to just, you know, get the most out of their circumstances. And that doesn't always mean sending a PR at every race. It just means getting the most out of your circumstances and on race day, being courageous and making it happen. And that's exactly what Hannah has been able to do. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Hannah Johnson. Hello, Hannah, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Thank you, Matt, for having me. It's my pleasure, Hannah. And I got to be honest, it's been so show. You know, I've been following you for a while now. I swear for the last, I don't know, two years or so, um, following your, I guess not that transformation and conversion, but just like how you've progressed as a runner and as an athlete in the last two years between, you know, like pregnancies and then just like how hard you work and you're an early morning exerciser like me. So we're kind of like on the same schedule a lot of time. And and it's just, and then recently, man, your running has like kicked up to another level. So I'm just so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'll tell you what. So before we get going, talking about kind of what you're doing right now as an athlete. Um, I guess we have to start a little bit before that because you weren't always an athlete. So what about in your earlier life kind of, you know, led you not to be quite as athletic as you are today? Yeah. So it's really weird you calling me an athlete because I, I don't know, it's just never been in my vocabulary. Um, I guess I, I don't really know. I, I think my parents experienced, me to some sports, but I just, none of them clicked with me. I was probably more of a book nerd, um, kind of a rebel teenager. So I never really got into any organized sports and I really just was not athletic at all, not interested. And then it really started happening after I had our son about three years ago. So were you interested in health in any way? Because obviously, 
Um, and so obviously, because we haven't talked about it yet, it's obvious for me because I know your background. But no, you're you're a professor at the University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy. You you obviously graduated with a, with degrees in pharmacy in pharmaceuticals and pharmacy. So with that in mind, were you kind of like geared towards health at that age, or what kind of led you down that path if you weren't really involved in the, on the on the athletic side as well? So I really wasn't. I was like I was probably trying to be healthy for the wrong reasons a lot growing up. So I would consider myself, you know, the normal teenage girl, insecure, looking at exercise and food in the wrong way just to be skinny. And I really had that unhealthy relationship for a long time until I got pregnant with our son. And I realized that I needed to make a mindset change. And so that's really where it started. I, I, you know, really didn't know much about food or exercise or anything until I got pregnant with him and started taking it seriously and um, wanting to take better care of myself to be a role model for him. And what about at that time kind of spurred this paradigm shift in you? Um, I think it was, you know, I had been around other people who had unhealthy relationships with food and um, with self-esteem and maybe even like body dysmorphia. And so I realized that I did not want to, to raise my kids in that sort of setting. And so I just made that shift that, you know, I, I have to, right now is the best time for me to start so that they aren't exposed to that in the future. And so, um, it really, he at that time was the motivation for all of it really. So you were talking about two things, you know, you have the, uh, the improving as an athlete side and being more active and the other side in terms of like your relationship with food and how much um, at that time were these two, um, these two things combined or were they, are they, were they separated in your life? They were um, more separated. I was, I, I mean, I still, you know, I think a lot of people food, Food is the way more difficult of the two between exercise and eating healthy or um, healthfully. And so I'm with you on that one. I can't yeah. speak for everybody else, Hannah, but it's definitely easier for me yeah. to do the to do the, the exercise thing than the food oh, thing. Oh yeah, yeah. So I feel like I've always been like chasing my food with exercise, and so it was probably still like that um, even after he was born, and even now. I mean, I'm not a. I don't eat like a quote unquote athlete at all. Um, but I think that they were separate for a, a long time and then just kind of gradually started. Um, I, as I was learning more about running and um, respecting it more and respecting my body more, then the shift kind of started happening where like food is fuel and I can't be afraid of carbs because I need carbs now kind of thing. And so it kind of just kind of all melded together eventually. So because you, you picked up running um, very close to when you, when you became pregnant, what was it like for you? You know, it just seems like it's such a hard, you know, getting started with athletics, you know, late on, later on in life, but like, you know, say if you're, if you're into running, say in middle school or high school, or you're really active and you just come back to it, you've already laid this foundation of like, I know how this feels or how it's supposed to feel especially in the beginning. So for you, what was it like to not only be starting this new physical fitness habit while at the same time 
having your body change so dramatically just from the pregnancy itself? Yeah. So when I was pregnant with him, I wasn't really running. Um, I was doing like elliptical at the time and lifting some light weights. Um, so I didn't really start regularly running until the end of my maternity leave with him. So at about, you know, 10, 10 weeks to 12 weeks before I was going back to work because we would go on really long walks. And I thought, maybe I should like try and jog for a couple minutes. Um, and then so then the jogging just progressively got more and more. And so then by the end of my maternity leave, I was able to run a couple miles with him in the jogging stroller. And so then after that, it um, it wasn't a quick development, but it started picking up a little bit more as I as the stresses of early motherhood were happening. I realized I needed a hobby and an outlet. And so it was just something easy for me to start doing regularly. And I've seen you write in the past that you had overcome postpartum depression. Was that after your first pregnancy or your second? It was after the second. So I didn't, okay. uh, looking back at the first, I didn't have any struggles or anything. But um, with our daughter, who's now 17 months old, that that's when I struggled with um, the postpartum depression and anxiety. Okay. So when you, so after your son getting out there was much more of like, all right, I know, especially like, especially for so many people, like just getting time to yourself in those yeah. moments can be like, it's worth its weight in gold, no matter what you're doing. Exactly. So it kind of served that purpose in a way. It did. It did. And so, and the time just kept accumulating where it would start off at 20 minutes and then it would go to 30 and then 45. And then eventually I could be out there for like an hour and a half. And then I'd be like, I don't want to go home. <laughs> I could do this all day. Um, so yeah, it just kind of grew from there. And when did you start uh, coming up with different goals around um, your exercise habits that you were picking up, Not whether it was running or I know, you know, especially now, like I see you always, you know, busting out like the, the bike in the mornings and, you know, you're active with uh, with weight training as well. When did, when did it become not only in a, you know, an outlet for you and just a way of, you know, kind of creating some me time, but becoming something that you, you know, were a little bit more competitive with in terms of testing yourself? I want to say, so I, I think that my 5k, the year that I had our son, um, was the first time I had broken 30 minutes. And so after that, I was like, wow, I can actually get a little bit faster. Granted, it was probably still like a nine, a high eight or low nine minute pace, but I was like, wow, I can actually get a little bit faster. Um, because my goal for so long had been to break a 30 minute 5k. Um, and so then after that, I, you know, would try and do like a 830 mile and then, um, it just kind of quickly progressed, um, from there. And so it probably wasn't until, um, my first Ragnar relay, the bourbon chase here in Kentucky. So that would have been, I was actually secretly pregnant with our daughter. Um, 10 weeks pregnant doing that, that I, I had really set a goal for a pace that I wanted to run my legs of the Ragnar relay. So thinking back to when you broke 30, you now you've, you know, you've run um, a lot faster than that since yes. so you, you, this year, you, you are running at you know, a really high level. And, but at the same time, like a goal is a goal and an achievement and a landmark 
it doesn't really matter the time. So do you think, can you, can you remember back to when you broke 30 and how you felt on that day? I, I do remember because I remember my husband celebrating just as much as me. And he had also had a PR, but he's always been a lot faster than me because he actually is an athlete. Um, but I remember, you know, just being so excited and him, you know, cheering for me too. And so, yeah, it was a great feeling. And it's, you know, some people don't believe runners high, but, you know, runners high, I think is real, especially when you have um, momentous PRs, like I was trying to have that breaking 30 minutes. And I remember breaking my first 60 minute 10 K, like that was a huge one for me as well. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is important because, you know, so just looking at this year, I mean, you were around the 725, 730 pace for 10K and for the half marathon, which we'll get which we'll mm-hmm. get to. And obviously that's considerably faster than the times that we're talking about here. But the, those finish line feelings and achieving goals, you know, it really it just doesn't matter what the goals are as long as it's a stretch for you and you're achieving something. And right. I think sometimes people lose sight of that because they start looking at other people and like, oh, this was easy for them. So maybe this isn't that big of an achievement. Right. And that's what I've learned about running is that it is, it's you against yourself. And that's like, that's what makes it fun. But also you can just be competitive with yourself and it's um, personal record. So it's your personal record, not someone else's record that you're chasing. Um, And, you know, why I started was me time. So this is for me. Um, And so sometimes I have to remind myself of that. But most of the time, I don't. I'm kind of over looking at other people's numbers. <laughs> now, are you able to do the same thing in your house? Like you mentioned, you know, your your husband's really active. He's I've seen like his triathlon times and stuff like that. Was it was there any in-house competition or, you know, anything like are you see him getting out there and kicking butt? And maybe like you're not quite ready to do that because you're kind of coming off one of your pregnancies and you're on maternity leave and things like that. What's it been like for you? juggling, you know, like the, the, that kind of, um, I guess, joint athletic goal setting within your own home? Honestly, it was really difficult around the pregnancy. I was fine throughout my pregnancy because I was, I felt really lucky that I was able to still run up until two days before our daughter was born. And so I wasn't worried about speed during that time. But when I was having that anxiety and depressive Um, feelings, it just added another level of resentment that I wasn't able to get out there and release the what actually made me feel better or what I knew could um, help my mood. And so that added to it uh, a little bit. And um, I think he he recognized it because he was the one who really recognized that something was going on. So we're able to talk through it. And I was able to find other forms of exercise when I couldn't um, quite run yet. But then when it comes to other times, you know, he's played sports his entire life. And um, I really thought this last half marathon, I was going to get him. And he actually thought I was (laughs) going to as well. Um, He was, he's going to die when I say, but he was in the bathroom when the start, when it started. And so he started with the 245 pace group and just slowly made his way up. And it wasn't until we looked at our chip time that he had beat me by, what was it? It was like 17 seconds or something. Oh. And so I know. 
So I was a little, but it was also one of his, it was his PR too. And so, you know, I was a little bit frustrated at first, but he reminded me, he said, remember when we first started doing this, I was beating your times by seven or eight minutes. So this is huge. Uh, So, you know, he's always making me feel better about it. So let's talk a little bit about how, how you bounce back um, after your, after having your daughter, because at, in one sense, you bounce back, you know, really, really well in terms of like you are, you got, you seem like you were really active. Um, and obviously the, the running results speak for themselves since, since you've been born. But as you just mentioned, you also, you know, were working through postpartum depression. So what was it like for you, um, you know, during that time and being able to manage not only, you know, you have, you have another kid at home, you have, you know, full time, full time job and you're trying to be active as well and just a lot on your plate. What was that like for you trying to to manage all that stress? So I, you know, I really prioritize my self-care because I know that when I'm taking care of myself and doing what I like to do, even if it was getting three broken up 10 minute at a time runs in a day, that I would be a better version of myself for them. So my husband and I would try and prioritize getting that time in. And, um, I really, I involve our kids as much as possible. So our son knows that I'm down in the basement in the morning, probably why he wakes up so early because he knows I'm already down there. So I kind of blame myself for his sleep problems. Um, but I involve them. They know that it's part of our daily routine. And so we've just kind of normalized it in the house. And so, you know, it, I don't think it was that hard to involve. I didn't really ever feel, I would feel guilty in the beginning, especially when he was really young and didn't understand as much. But now that he can play right next to me and knows that I'm getting strong and that I'm getting fast, that it's really kind of fun. And even this morning he was, we were um, at his school and he was racing up the stairs and he said, I'm training for my race this weekend. And so he is starting to understand it. And it's really, really fun to see him get involved and get excited about it, too. Yeah, I bet. I know. I, it's like that is awesome in one sense and like so frustrating in another sense, because I've been there when the kid comes down like hyper early or super early and it's like all hyped up. And you're like, yeah. just go back to bed, please. You know, and it's like, I it know. can be such a tough one. Try to manage those early morning workouts with kids that might be getting up early. I know. And I really have given, you know, cut myself a break, cut him a break. And if it has to be broken up, is it really going to make that big of a difference if I need to jump off the treadmill or jump off the bike for, you know, a minute or so to get him under control? Probably not. Uh, so I just cut us some slack and it seems to have worked for us. But now I, I did a one-on-one with a sleep trainer and so far so good. He's been sleeping until about six in the morning. Oh, that makes so much of a difference. <laughs> That's for sure. So what, what time yeah. do you usually get up in the morning to get your workout in? It varies. So between 4.30 and 5 generally. So my husband has to be at work at 6 in the morning. So I have to be home if I go outside to run before then. Uh, so 
Sometimes I'm out there at 445. Sometimes I can get out there at five if it's a shorter run, uh, but I have to be home before six so he can get to work. Right. And then I see you lifting all the time too. So for that, like, wh- how do you, I guess this, this kind of dovetails into what I was going to talk about regarding this year, because your running has gone so well, but also like you do so much more than running. So are you able to do some of your, your cross training work after six o'clock or does that have to be done too? So you can just like focus on the kids and get showered up for work and all that. Yeah. So I will do, I'm lucky to have a little area in our basement that I can go down and work out in. And so after my runs is when I do um, some lifting and that's where my spin bike is downstairs. And so it's usually right after the run that I'll, I, I alternate between core work and then during like marathon training, I only did one day of arms during this half marathon. I did a couple days of upper body, but I, I pretty much alternate core and legs, legs being like monster walks and bands, like light resistant type training. And then I only do one heavyish day of leg exercises. And that's um, when I'll do like the pistol squats. That's what I consider heavy. I don't do any like any heavy weights or anything like that. Wait, can you do the one-legged pistol squat all the way down unassisted? I haven't tried, I think, since I posted it on Instagram, but (laughs) at my strongest, I could because I was trying um, to be like Bethany Davis. She's Oh my gosh, she is a a queen with that stuff. Oh my goodness. Yeah, she is goals. I don't think I'll ever be... We have a fire hydrant outside of our house, but I don't think I'll ever test on it like she does <laughs> i've i have occasionally seen her do them and i'm like i'm gonna try it and i'm oh my god it's like blooper reel every single time trying to do a pistol squat for people who don't know what they are it's basically like doing a one-legged squat where your other leg is sticking out straight so not only is it a test of strength but like a crazy test of balance like i don't know what's harder the balancing or the strength part right and then you always have like a strong side and a weak side so um, I'm always off balance with them. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. All right. So let's talk about your, how you trained this year, because you really kicked butt. You had your first marathon in the spring and then you had a huge 10 K beginning of July. And then you just had a half marathon as well, because your training plans aren't necessarily the typical ones in terms of people that we have on here. Like you weren't cross trying to crush like a 50, 60 mile weeks. So I guess first things first is, is who is your coach and what are some of the things that you and her tried to incorporate into your schedule, not only because they're valuable, but because they kind of dovetail into the things that you like to do? So my coach is Skelly with Run for PRs. And I actually first started following them after starting listening to your podcast um, when Victoria was on. And so I got linked up with Skelly because I started following all of the coaches and he posted that he was doing the Louisville Marathon, the Kentucky Derby Festival Marathon, which I had signed up for. But I had signed up for it before I it was discovered that I had a tibial stress fracture. And so I commented on one of his posts, one of his training runs. I'm signed up for this, but I have a stress fracture. I 
we'll be able to start running 16, 16 weeks out from the marathon. Do you think it's possible to still train for it? And so he uh, messaged me back and said, I think it could be possible, but you know, you definitely need to be careful. And so that's how it started. And so he built me a plan starting from running five minutes every other day um, up until the uh, Derby Marathon on April 28th, I think it was. Um, and so he incorporated two days of cross training, whether that be swimming or s- cycling. And then we never ran back-to-back days. So I ran every other day and everything was just time on my feet. There was no speed work involved. It was all just easy running. Now, this is a huge achievement because, you know, you end up running 346 in your first marathon coming off of obviously not an ideal training plan here um, by any sense of any stretch of the imagination. So let's talk, let's really dive into this. So you're 16 weeks out, you're running five minutes, you know, four months before the marathon. What was it like or how did it feel as you start to bump up the mileage and what did that actually mean in terms of like how long were you running on these days? Because like you just said, like you weren't you weren't doing back to back days and you could only test it so much. So what kind of mileage were you able to build up to and how did you do that building? Starting from when I got the OK to run from the sports medicine physician, we started I did a five minute test run on the treadmill and then. If I didn't feel any pain, I was allowed to move up to a mile or 10 minutes. Um, and that's what I did. So then I did 10 minutes every other day for a week and then 15 minutes every other day for a week and then 20 minutes every other day for a week and then 30 minutes every other day for a week. And so that was the first four weeks of my marathon training was just being able to comfort, comfortably run again. And then after that, I went out on a six mile run slow still so 10 10 minute pace um and then once we i felt comfortable with that and no pains then that's when the build really started so for that first month you basically topped out at like 15 miles a week <laughs> if that i think i had 12 miles one week and i thought this is impossible but <laughs> <laughs> um, and and even at the peak, my peak week, I think, was only 36 miles um, for the marathon. So and then with two days of cross training in there. Right. So it's not as if you were, you know, and I think this is important because we've talked a lot in this podcast about how important kind of like years of training can be in something like the marathon, because just building up that your body's resistance to that level of pounding is important. It's not as if you had years of marathon experience and you just happened to be fighting a nagging injury here. This was your first one. So what what was it like for you, just from a confidence perspective, being able to go through this plan, which again, you, you were obviously aware that it wasn't like the ideal situation. What was it like from a confidence perspective, trying to set yourself up for thinking like, hey, you know, I can do this. I can make this happen because we all know anyone who's run a marathon knows how important having confidence is because it's going to really test you on race day. Yeah. So I, I don't think I ever felt unconfident. My goal from the beginning for it being the first marathon was to just finish without 
stopping without walking. Um, and then I think it was when I did my 20 miler at altitude in Salt Lake City that I was like, oh, I think I could make a time goal for this one. Um, still not super aggressive because I did not want to bonk my first marathon. Um, and, you know, I, in the back of my mind, the entire marathon, I was saying, this isn't starting until mile 20. So just, you know, I really held myself back. Um, and so I felt pretty confident that I was, I was going to be able to finish and that I was going to be able to finish healthfully. That was another one of my goals. And I'm, you know, part of being a pharmacist is you're, you're kind well, and also just a runner in general, you're, you're a perfectionist in a lot of senses. And so I followed the plan to a T. I think Skelly said he, he, I think he called me the green machine because on my training peaks, everything was perfectly green. I never missed a workout. I never overdid it, underdid it, rearranged the schedule or anything. Um, so I felt pretty good because I knew that I, I did the plan exactly as it was laid out. And what did your cross training look like um, throughout this progression as well? Like, did your cross training progress from a time and intensity standpoint the way your running did? It was mostly, so it started off with 30 minutes spinning. I don't have great access to a pool, especially in the wintertime. And so it was mostly on the spin bike and it started at 30 minutes and then it got up to 40 minutes. I think I had a couple 60 minute rides on there. And then um, with this half, this last half marathon, they never went above 40 minutes. So I would have two of those a week and then one and with, complete rest day. So when you incorporate the, the, the spinning bike, is that in lieu of, um, of easy days or is it, do you do easy days and the spin bike and like one hard day a week? So with me coming off the injury, everything was considered easy. And so the running was time on my feet and just being able to spend that time on my legs. And then the, the bike was, I've always treated it kind of like an easy run, um, just for the endurance and maintaining aerobic fitness. So how did your your work in uh, in strength training evolve during that time and, and, and now into uh, later on in the year? So my strength training, I think I was do I, I was I'd obviously been doing the wrong kind of strength training. And I really started focusing on what I call running specific strength training. So everything that I was doing, especially during the marathon, was solely to benefit my running and me strengthening. So a lot of it was physical therapy moves that I was doing because ever since having our son, I've had, um, you know, little, little injuries here and there related to weak core or I call my mom hip, um, just some weaknesses. So a lot of physical therapy type strength moves and then things like pistol squat that really are uh, focusing on glutes and um, strength that you need for running. Now, after you finished that marathon, I know Victoria posted um, on the Run for PR's website how you were like the guess, like just just like Skelly said when with like in regards to your training, like you always did exactly what you were supposed to do. It sounds like you also were like 
the perfect athlete from a coach's perspective in terms of making sure that you recovered as much as you needed to after that first marathon. So what was that recovery process like for you? And I'm saying that in light of the fact that you went out and crushed a 10K this summer. So I'm really excited to talk about how quickly you went from post-marathon through recovery and then later on into, you know, to maybe a little bit more of a, you know, strength training, not strength training, but speed work that you weren't able to do during the marathon buildup. Yeah. So I knew I was going to take at least a week off after the marathon. And then my husband and I actually had a trip scheduled for Mexico the next week. And so I thought, you know, I, I've been packing all of my running gear for the last, you know, four months everywhere I went, including a foam roller and all of the goos and nutrition and oatmeal. I don't want to carry any of that stuff. So I thought another week is not going to do anything. So it was kind of nice kind of getting another forced break, another forced week break off from the running. So I took two full weeks off after the marathon. Uh, while we were in Mexico, I did get on the spin bike a couple times. And, um, but other than that, I came back and just, I never got sick of running with the marathon. And so I was, but I was also really excited to come back and just get back to running for fun when I wanted to, not on a schedule, could sleep in, could push the jogging stroller if I wanted to. So it was, it was kind of nice to get back to just normal running for me. And what was it like when you started incorporating speed work in? Because it sounds like up until this point, it really hadn't been a major part of your running life. Yeah. And I really didn't incorporate any speed work going into that 10K. That was kind of a, a redemption run because I had a horrible, so that exact, it's on 4th of July. And, you know, I don't know why I try and race when it's so humid here in Kentucky and so hot by the time the, the race starts. Um, but that was kind of a, a redemption race for me. So I didn't really do much speed work leading up to it. It wasn't until this half marathon cycle that Skelly incorporated speed work as well as hill work because we knew that this was going to be a hilly course. And I told him that I wanted to try and break 140. And I think we were both kind of like, eh, I don't know if that's possible with this course, but. I went into it like, okay, I'm going to at least try for it. Um, and so that's when he started adding in some speed work and some hill work. Yeah. I mean, you ended up running the exact same pace for your half marathon that you ran for the 10K this summer, which is you mm -hmm. know, obviously a huge improvement. So when you started doing speed work and doing these hills, how did it, if it did affect your running, how did it affect you as a runner regarding, you know, like, your form or just you know, how, how strong you felt later on for your long runs and, and things like that? Yeah. So being in Kentucky, we have rolling hills. So I've, all, I've, I've never run a flat course. The flattest course I've run was the Kentucky Derby Festival Marathon. And there were actually some hills in that one. Um, so I felt like hills had, I'm comfortable with them, but I had never really known how to smartly tackle them. I've always, instead of going based on effort, I would just, you know, try and maintain the same pace and, um, and then just die at the end of them kind of thing. And so I really <laughs> learned about, um, 
effort, running hills based on effort. And, um, and then it definitely transformed, I think it transformed my body more than anything, like booty gains and thighs. And I'm the most muscular I think I've ever been because of it. So I, I also thank Skelly for that as well. <laughs> now, let's talk a little bit about, about your profession, because I think it's so fascinating, especially now when people have like, you know, everyone goes to Google, everyone thinks they know everything about like diet and nutrition and medication and, and all of this. And especially someone like you now who has, you know, you have a very healthy lifestyle, um, you know, looking at how you exercise and how conscious you are of what your body's able to do. And then also working in a field uh, like pharmacy. How is it for you seeing people who maybe um, rely too much on medications in a way where maybe they could probably find other ways to, you know, improve their life. You know, and I say that in light of like, obviously medication is important, but maybe people, uh, and I have family members who do this as well, who maybe use medication in ways that maybe there are, are other means to improve their health. Yeah, I think, so I, since I've started being more health conscious, especially in my teaching, I try and teach at least non-pharmacologic or non-medication ways to treat um, different diseases. And so I my specialty is um, mental health and behavioral health. And there's definitely a huge component of physical activity and its um, impact on mental health, anxiety, relieving anxiety, helping with depression. Um, I definitely think it helped with my um, postpartum symptoms that I have. But then you also have to think about food and food being the ultimate medicine. We're putting it in our bodies multiple times a day. So that's something to remember. And a lot of times we're not going to optimize. You, you can't oftentimes out-medicate a bad um, diet or bad lifestyle. Um, so that's something to remember too. So using the non-medication um, options in combination. So is, is usually what I recommend if someone does need medication, because a lot of times people do need medications for um, what they're treating, but um, sometimes they're not necessary. I, I think that there's a lot of non-medication options out there being in mental health, especially like therapy, um, can be very beneficial that are definitely underutilized. Right. And I say this, and I think, I don't think I said it as eloquently as I had hoped in the sense that I, that question was kind of in light of the fact that you hear all these stats about, you know, medications being overprescribed and things like that. And, you know, in, in a wide variety of genres, um, not just in mental health or things like that, because there obviously are a place and they are obviously very important for a lot of people. But then you get into like, you know, kids with ADHD, things being overprescribed, things like that. And just as a parent, you wonder like, okay, like I don't want my kids to fall into a trap where I'm giving them medication when maybe I shouldn't, as opposed to like finding again, more methods. So how do you, as a professor now at the university of Kentucky, work with your students in a way that provides this holistic mindset that you kind of intimated before in regards to how to approach the health and well-being of the people they're serving? So I think that um, it's really important to 
to know that oftentimes medications aren't going to change situations. Um, and so being able to, to cope with the certain situation that you're in. Um, and I don't know if I'm answering this exactly, um, exactly what you're going after, but, um, I, I do educate on other options that are available and that usually using non-pharmacologic in combination with the pharmacologic can sometimes lead to the most benefits. And oftentimes if symptoms aren't severe, then these non-medication um, options are what we should be trying at first. Unfortunately, the resources for them aren't out there um, as much as we would like. So sometimes it is just easier for um, people to get medications than it is to receive this sort of therapy or family kind of dynamic um, support that they would need for treating, for example, ADHD. And you're an interesting situation too, because as we've, um, as many people have heard, and someone who works in higher ed, just like you, I hear these stats all the time that students are much more stressed out, that they you know, are dealing with more mental health issues and and challenges and things of that nature than they have in the past. And it seems like, you know, there you're in a situation where you're dealing with students that maybe are more possibly predisposed to having mental health issues than people who came before them. And you're in a situation where you're also talking about this topic in class. So what's that like seeing it from, you know, both of those angles? Um, for me, I think it's really important to normalize it as much as possible. Um, so I usually set out the goal, like, yes, I can teach you all about medications, but you can also look up that information and references. So my goal is to destigmatize mental illness and destigmatize the interactions that you will have with different types of patients. And so it's kind of what I do um, on social media as well, just trying to normalize the difficulties of motherhood, but also normalize mental illness as well. And so I am not afraid to share that I had postpartum depression and anxiety um, and that I had anxiety as a pharmacy student as well. And so I think normalizing it and seeing that successful people can also struggle with it um, and defeat it is oftentimes resonates more than me just standing in front of the classroom teaching them about medications. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine. And it seems like it's also one of it's also one of those professions where you need to stay up to date on so much. So what's it like for you not only to like be, you know, be a working pharmacist and be a professor, but try to stay as up to date as you can in a world where there's just constant innovation and there's so much, to, there's so much to know, not only about new things coming out, but also like, oh, now we know more about the medicines that have maybe been on the shelf for a while or that you've been acquainted with for a while. But now there's been more trials that have come through that maybe provide you with even more information about when, when it can and cannot be used. Yeah, I stay, I probably don't stay as up to date as I should, but luckily you, we can get a lot of alerts um, about innovative things that are happening or changes. So I get multiple daily alerts and we'll click through those every day. And then um, I'm on um, a psychiatric pharmacist listserv that communicates regularly um, as well. And so a lot of times it's through that 
word of mouth or through um, even email type alerts that I get most of my information that I can stay mildly up to date with my um, certifications, my board certifications. I do need to regularly get continuing education credit. And so that also um, keeps me up to date as well. All right. So you have been kicking butt. You just had an unbelievable half marathon, 138, almost got the husband in the showdown. So what are some of the upcoming goals for you, um, not only at the end of 2019, but looking into 2020? I We usually do a Thanksgiving Day um, 5K, which um, I've constantly improved on. That was the one that I broke that 30-minute um, goal with. And I don't even remember my last time. I think it was at 21 something. Uh, so that's usually uh, in our fall schedule. I don't know why I didn't sign up for a later fall run because fall when it's crisp is when I'm my best. So I might end up doing a 10K in November just to get that. I, I'm, I've been trying to get a 45 minute 10K. Um, for a while now and choosing a 4th of July race is not the best time to try and go for that. So I might try and do that in November. And then I'm really going to rest up for a spring marathon again. Same one as last time? I haven't decided yet. We might try and tag on something with the kids spring break and travel somewhere. Um, but I also I really liked the one that I did. It was pretty flat with just a couple um, hills in the middle that I know um, trip some people up, but I, I tended to like them to break up the monotony of the flat course. So I don't know. We, my husband needs to look at his 2020 Ironman schedule and we're trying to coordinate that. So I'd like to knock out my marathon as early as possible so that he can hopefully get a couple 70.3s in next year. And so we really just need to look at our 2020 schedule. Oh, man, between the two of you, you guys have to, like, be very conscious about when you're going to be racing. I mean, it's like these weekends we, uh, can pile up fast. Right. We are. We try and be really strategic so that we can give each other our seasons and one of us can be the weekend warrior taking care of the kids or else it is too hard to try and juggle them back and forth if we both have to do two and a half, three hour workouts each day. We did. Uh, get into Chicago this year, but deferred. So we also potentially have that in the fall as well. So we'll just kind of see about that. Oh, and it will definitely make traveling a little easier if everyone's, you know, a little, you know, one year older on the kid's side. I know. And that's what I remind myself. So, you know, I, her kids are still really young and they're not sleeping well. And I have the rest of my life to continue to do this. And that's why I'm really smart about my training and not trying to overdo it because I want to have that longevity. And so when they are sleeping late and when I can go wake them up in the mornings, um, I, I know that that'll be my time that I'll be able to get out there and really hopefully get more miles in as much as my body can handle it. Well, I'll tell you what, it's working now because you're improving all the time. You're kicking butt. Hannah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Hannah, thanks again for coming on the show. This was a blast. And I haven't talked to a pharmacist before, so I was really excited to talk to you about that, especially knowing 
the holistic way you live your own life and seeing how you incorporate that into your professional life. Also, big ups to the sponsors for today's episode. As always, Megaton Coffee and TuneUp CBD. If you haven't checked them out, please do so, not because they're sponsors of this podcast, but because they will help you improve your life. I love Megaton Coffee, and I use TuneUp CBD every day. I always take the drops, and recently, with my ankle injury, I've been using their Extra Strength CBD salve as well on my ankle, and it's really worked out. I mean, I wish my ankle was 100%. It's not, but the healing process has gone very well, and part of the reason, I'm sure, is because of TuneUp CBD. So, with that being said, thank you so much for listening rating, reviewing, and sharing the show. I love it when I see the shares because I know it means that you like what we're putting out here, which is a big deal for me because not only do I like these conversations, but I hope that they're creating some sort of an impact on the people who are hearing them because I'm just so lucky to have great guests like Hannah. So again, thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.